Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Walk Show Podcast. This is your host, Walker Near. Today's show, as always, is brought to you by Nobody. However, I would like to mention Pick Up Your Sticks, which is my other podcast that I co-host with Brett Lindley. Pick Up Your Sticks is a podcast all about video games, uh, but instead of just doing news and reviews or current events in gaming, Brett and I try and talk about why gaming matters. We explore old games, new games, games that, that we've been playing recently, games that we haven't played in a long time, uh, but just things that, that really meant something to us and try and talk about how gaming affects our lives outside of just serving as a, a form of entertainment. Um, so if you like the walk show and you like the long form discussions we've got here, then I think you'll really enjoy Pick Up Your Sticks. Uh, and you can listen to Pick Up Your Sticks on Apple, Spotify, Google, you know, uh, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts or, or wherever you listen to this, you can also find Pick Up Your Sticks. As always, today's show is music is made by Misha Zarin, so thank you very much, Misha, for providing the music. And as far as the topic for today's show, I actually couldn't be more excited. I have wanted to do this episode for quite some time, and I've wanted to record with this person for quite some time. Uh, and that person is Nick Cunningham, who's a, a dear friend of mine for the majority of my life at this point. Um, and the topic we're going to discuss is the Matrix movies. Now, the Matrix movies are certainly not new. <laughs> the first one came out in 99, and the second and third one came out in 2003. But they're movies that have resonated with Nick and I since we saw them when they first came out. Um, I own one painting that was a gift. I didn't purchase it myself, but it was a gift. And it is a painting of Trinity holding the red pill, and it's a, a super dope painting. But um, I just absolutely love The Matrix. And while the first Matrix movie gets plenty of love, I feel like the second and third Matrix movies don't really get the credit that they deserve most of the time. Uh, so Nick and I just kind of sat down and decided to talk about what it is that we like about them so much and kind of what you know what scenes stand out to us and, and what, what we think it means and, and that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, just really love the Matrix movies. Something that we we br mentioned briefly but don't really get into enough, I think, is is the Animatrix. Um, if you listen to the Walk Show episode about Love, Death, and Robots, then you would have heard me talk about uh, the Animatrix on that because it kind of compares to Love, Death, and Robots. But the Animatrix is kind of a an anime... Uh, it's not even really a series, but it's a, a series of animated shorts that are kind of a companion to The Matrix. They don't feature the same characters, and they don't necessarily follow the same storyline in, in, you know, as far as the actual specific events of The Matrix, but they take place in the same world that The Matrix is in. So you kind of get stories from outside of the context of Neo and, and Morpheus and that sort of stuff. Um, two of the Animatrix shorts specifically actually go back and, and, and show how the world was before the machines took over and kind of how that collapse happened. Um, and it's, it's super good. It, it's one of my favorite things that I've seen, not, not just animated, just period. It's excellent. Um, another, another one of the, the shorts from the animatrix is it's this guy who is a track star and he's able to basically, he doesn't know that he's like cracking the matrix, if you will, but he's able to, to run faster than he should be able to because he's in the Matrix, even though he doesn't consciously recognize it. And so some agents come and, and shut that down. But 
There's another animated movie called Redline that is one of my absolute favorite anime movies. It, it's it's super cool. It's just about a, a car race in outer space in the future. Um, to try and describe it beyond that would would be too too much. But but suffice it to say, Redline is is an excellent thing. And the people who animated Redline are the same people who animated that that one episode of the animatrix with the sprinter so if you've seen the animatrix and you know what i'm talking about then you should absolutely check out redline if you haven't because that that sprinter episode of the animatrix is is gorgeous and redline is uh yeah also in that same vein Uh, without further ado let's get over to the conversation Right. Well, like I said in the intro, super excited today to have uh, my dear friend Nick Cunningham join the walk show. So, Nick, thank you for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, so, the Matrix movies have been some of our favorite movies, I mean, since we first saw them. Um, I, a lot of people like the first Matrix movie, but the second and third ones get a pretty bad rap. Uh, but you and I are pretty pretty strong in our opinion that the whole trilogy holds up the whole time. Like I don't, I don't have, I don't have a problem with any of the movies. Like when I first saw all three, the third one, I was a little more iffy on than the other two. But as time has gone on, I just like the third one just as well as the other two. Yeah, that's definitely interesting. Um, I think it's also just difficult when with trilogies, you know, you have to end your second movie somewhere, and, and typically it tends to be like the. Uh, the climax or the pinnacle of of the story. So, naturally, if you split it into three parts, you know, three movies, you wind up with the third one being very drastically different than the second one in resolving the story instead of being a very action packed go 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 in building it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like in the 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 Lord of the Rings, that 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 trilogy. I mean, I think most people think that the second one is probably the best. I I know I always kind of felt that way, but to that point. It's also the one that doesn't actually have to resolve anything. It just gets to be fun the whole four hours or however long exactly. that movie is. Action packed, and you've got the towers and the fighting and the yeah. right, yeah. right. And you get cool stuff in the other ones, but yeah, ultimately they have to wipe, wrap it up, or, or you know whatever, resolve it, and uh, you don't get that in the second one. So I just w- I want to start by talking about the first one. We'll just kind of go in order to some extent, I guess, but. Um, so for me, my exposure to the first movie, I had no idea that it was a movie coming out. I had no idea of anything. I didn't, nothing. My mom came home from work on a Friday, and I was like a freshman or something in high school probably, and said, hey, a bunch of people are at work are talking about this new movie called The Matrix. Do you want to go see it tonight? And I said, sure. No idea what, anything. I had no idea what it was about. I asked her if she knew anything, and she said, no. All the ads for it just say, what is the Matrix? (laughs) So, (laughs) Uh, I don't really know either. And so we go and see it, and it's literally the only movie I can ever say that I was actually on the edge of my seat in the theater while watching it. Because I was just so, just completely immersed and enamored by the entire thing. Like, I had no idea what to expect. I had never seen anything like it. I had never considered anything like that, n- all of it was outside the scope of my, you know, perception of, of what a movie could be. 
Um, and yeah, literally just leaned forward with my knees on my arms and like, you know, resting my, my hands on my chin or whatever and just, just completely glued to the screen. Um, I don't know. It's just, it, it's just such a, such a cool experience. And I remember little stupid things like the first, the first time you see Neo and he's asleep at his computer and he's got music playing and it actually is Massive Attack, which mm -hmm. we later became big fans of. Yeah, definitely. But at that time, I remember hearing it and being like, what song is that? Like, I want to hear music like that. Like, because I, yet again, I've never heard that. Like, I listen to whatever MTV plays or, you know, at that time. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, had you, you've seen more animes and stuff than I have, though. So had you seen stuff that kind of was in that direction more at all, or did it completely shock you as well? Um, no, it definitely shocked me, I would say, as well. It's uh, in one, On the one hand, I think it was probably the perfect timing for us at that age. I forget you know, exactly how old we yeah, were. Yeah, 14, 15, something like um, that. You know, you're starting to see the world in your own eyes as a, as a um, growing adolescent, right? Mm -hmm. So you start considering things more, and that that the matrix specifically creates a space where it's almost twilight zone or something, you know, right. where it's like you get these what ifs for things that you hadn't necessarily considered before. Mm -hmm. So it's captivating. I think in the sense that, um, it kind of hits that spot where the intrigue is still alive. It's not Santa Claus anymore. Like when you're a kid, but it's real enough that it makes sense, but different enough that it's like, wow, what if? Right. So, um, yeah, I can't remember how I came about seeing the first movie. It might have been a, you know, you brought it up to me after you saw it with your mom. Or I probably, <laughs> I was freaking out. <laughs> yeah, but what I mean, just a thing that's consistent throughout the the trilogy was that, you know, the first movie comes out, I see that, and then I'm dying waiting for the next one to come out, which seems like an eternity, right? It's like five years, legitimately. And then, yeah, right. So it's a long time, but also, you know, you see a, a good thing and you want to have get more of it right um, but i remember that distinctly from after the second one as well where it's like give me the whole story I, you know i know you get to the end of the movie and you still want to watch more movie right well i think and i think that's part of why people um in fairness to people that like the first one much better than the other two i think it's also because the first one like they could have not made anymore and the first one still stands on its own whereas like the second one does would not be satisfying if there wasn't the third kind one. Kind of cliffhangers. Yeah, yeah, right. They they they're really like part one and two of, you know, a th the same thing. Because um, when the first Matrix ends, I mean, you you understand the world, you understand who Neo is, and he flies away, and that's kind of the end of it. And I I didn't expect that there would be another one, but that was because back then. We didn't live in a world of infinite sequels yet either, right? <laughs> right? Like, I mean, you have you have some movies like Star Wars and Indiana Jones and stuff like that that have multiple, or you have really bad versions like the Rambo movies or the Rocky movies that just would never stop being made even to this day. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. I didn't really have a clear expectation for a sequel, but was super stoked when it happened. And was and I don't know if you remember, but actually both the second and third ones came out in the same year. They released like six months apart, but they both have a release year of two thousand three, um, which is kind of cool and kind of rare that you would get that. I mean, most movies that have sequels now, at best, you're getting it annually, and right? Yeah. Most of the time, it's two years really. Like the new Star Wars franchise is every two years that you get another, you know, 
in the main story movie or whatever. Um, I, I, so I've 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 probably watched the second movie more than any of the any of the others. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was just just today actually was rewatching some of the first one, and yeah, it's just it's interesting how they kind of introduce the supernatural of it all. I mean, obviously the very opening scene is Trinity and there's some supernatural element there. Cause she like disappears in thin air when she gets on the payphone and the Mack truck smashes the phone booth. And then she's, she's just gone and you don't really have an explanation as to why. And then the next thing that's really weird is when Neo is, is in the office complex running from the agents and ultimately gets captured. And then they like, make his skin grow over his mouth. Yeah. Um, and then he can't, he can't speak. And then they put the little bug thing in his belly. And then a couple scenes later, that's taken out. And then a couple scenes later, he's waking up in like the pod of humans that are all, eventually you find out batteries, basically. Did you have any idea what was going on? <laughs> I had, I was completely just, flabbergasted by what was happening whenever like whenever he wakes up after he's touched the mirror or whatever yeah and he first wakes up it's like i i don't know i don't know what any of this <laughs> what any of this means well it i'm glad you brought up the scene with trinity where uh she's running from the agents and then you know gets in the phone booth and the the trash truck hits her <laughs> like i remember sitting there in the in the theater um not knowing what the you know conclusion of this story was going to amount to right and thinking, I was like, "What the what phone call could have possibly come in that was that important?" You know. <laughs> so I was totally lost at that point in time. I'm thinking, like, "What the hell was that about?" And they don't really provide you with an explanation, like you said, no. for, for a little while there. Right. So you're left wondering, and then of course, when he's first talking to Smith, um, and his, you know, the, his mouth grows together so he can't speak. Mm-hmm. Um. There have been movies who have done things kind of like that, but it's the old standbys where you expect that he wakes up and he was had a, having a bad dream and it's going to tie into the story for some other reason. Which kind of does happen, because then he does wake up. Right. To the computer or whatever. But then before um, but before he wakes up in the human battery pillar mm-hmm. farm thing, mm-hmm. you know, him and Morpheus had had that conversation. So at that point, it, it, it kind of buttoned it up for me. I was like, oh, so that wasn't a dream they actually intended to show actual events right um and then they framed it in a way that you understand why it was done in that in that way right right uh, but did i see that coming no not at all <laughs> yeah of, uh, <laughs> came out of nowhere kind of thing. right yeah and i just like another thing that people so the, the title of this episode is in defense of the matrix because for years i've had to, to withstand these people complaining about it and it's just all the things that people don't like I just think are great. Like people, people criticize it's like um, kind of like philosophical st- type statements or whatever. But I think they're great. Like I love one of the first ones is when when Neo gets picked up in the car by Trinity and Switch and Apoc, and they're gonna take the the thing out of his belly, the little bug that's the been bug, put yeah. there. Yeah, and. As soon as he gets in the car, they pull a gun on him, and then they tell him, you know, it's up to you um, if you want to... If It's either our way or the highway, they say. Yeah. And so he's like, okay, and then starts to get out of the car. And then Trinity stops him, and she and, he, and she's like, 
she's like, please trust us. And he asks why. And she says, because you know where that road ends. And he's looking down a street, you know, getting out of the car. And she's like, you know where that road ends. So you should, you should, you should just do this and you should try this instead. Because you know what happens at the end of that. And you don't know where this will go. Mm-hmm. And it's almost kind of like the perfect, like foreshadowing for really, I think the fundamental premise of the rest of the film, which is, is just choice. Right, like it's which you know ultimately is driven home very much at the end of the third movie, but yeah, that like in the end it's like you you always have a choice as to what direction you know you're gonna go, um, and then obviously that's presented again very quickly after that, but with the red pill and the blue pill, the most famous choice of the movies probably, um, but it's just kind of an interesting foreshadowing for yeah, kind of I think the underlying theme of Neo's power throughout the whole thing and it's his ability or his capacity to choose which exists within everyone right. but is is very much brought to the forefront always you know with him um yeah and then you go through the first one and you get to like well actually even before I go into <laughs> some more of the action stuff the guy who plays smith i think his name's hugo weaving is an incredibly perfect Smith. Like you yeah. couldn't possibly have cast a better guy. Yeah. And it's not, it, I mean, the way he speaks is great, but it's also just his facial expressions. Like the way his mouth looks when he says certain words is just like, he, he just perfectly embodies the like stereotype, typical FBI heartless suit kind of law enforcement person or whatever, you know? Yeah, great demeanor for the character, <laughs> and you know he's been in uh, a lot of things. You don't see him as like a um, leading man kind of a thing, no. Or anything, but really, he's in more things than I had considered. Mm-hmm. Well, he's in Lord of the Rings as the the father of yeah. the elves, or whatever. Not the father, but whatever the leader of the elves. Yeah. And th- those movies came out right around the same time: the Lord of the Rings and the Matrix. And I remember thinking, like, that guy has to be, like, the most happy actor ever. Because <laughs> he's got he's, it made, yeah. He's in the best two franchises <laughs> at that time of my life, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Yeah, he's very good at doing the, like, kind of stoic thing. And mm-hmm. um, Anyway, I, I think he's probably just a good actor as well, but he's the, good, he's the perfect person for it in the look. But I'm sure a fair amount of work went into... Um, being reserved and you know doing these kind of things with his development of the character but he did a great job it, well, it was perfect it's funny because he comes across as intimidating but if you actually look at him he's just a skinny balding man <laughs> like he's that's like that's not the guy that you see and you're like I don't want any piece of that but with Smith it's like you believe that he's a problem <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't just watch the rest of the movies right <laughs> right yeah he's ultimate problem actually um but yeah, so then, you know, you go through the first one and, you know, all of the scenes with the stuff where, like, Neo learns Kung Fu just by getting jacked into the Matrix and just all all of that kind of stuff is so, was so, such a neat concept. Again, it was, all, like, all of these different concepts in the movie or ideas in the movie, I just never thought of where I'd never thought about like what if your brain could get hooked up to a computer and just have information just loaded into it mm-hmm. like what does that look like and I definitely know you have known me for a very long time and know that I have 
never even when thin been able to jump very far or high. And definitely after watching the first Matrix, I thought maybe I could jump a lot higher if I just believed enough, <laughs> you know? Like if I just could unlock my mind. Yeah. Now maybe that was true and I just never did it, right? Because no one gets it on the first time, they say, but... <laughs> I tried more than once and it never worked. Yeah. But don't act like... Are you telling me as a kid you never sat and like tried to like telepathically control an object across the room just to see if maybe like maybe there was something oh yeah no doubt <laughs> I mean, yeah you, you wouldn't be it'd be more embarrassing to be the guy you know if you reach 80 years old and somebody you know some old wise person comes out this guy like hey incidentally we gave you telepathy and <laughs> you didn't think that it would work so you just never tried for you your were too life. skeptical it's way more embarrassing to be the guy who can do it and never did than <laughs> the guy who couldn't do it but tried mm -hmm. That might be a life philosophy just for all things, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, so, you know, the, the first movie, um, I would say probably the the most, you know, the climax of, of it, at least from an action perspective, would be like when they get loaded in, when they, they go to the construct and they need guns, lots of guns, and then they're going to rescue Morpheus. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and and that whole scene again with Hugo Weaving as Smith, like talking about how humanity is really just a parasite and it's not, it doesn't deserve to survive and it doesn't deserve to occupy the planet, basically. And it's a, <laughs> it's an interesting position, and I'm sure not unique to that movie. I'm sure that's a sentiment that's been held prior to then. But man, I mean, you know, you see now in the modern times with with all the climate change stuff that's going on and I, I don't know how much you're aware of like what's going on in Australia, but there's wildfires fires there. Yeah. I've seen some of that. They estimate 500 million animals have perished, like not a thousand, half a billion. So when you see stuff like that, I, it, it, Smith's sentiment that humanity maybe isn't such a great thing for the rest of the things that exist on Earth, kind of, you know, kind of hits a little close to home. Kind of holds water. Yeah. Uh, it's <laughs> it's a little tough. Well, and I think that's part of the reason that the movies um, were so intriguing. You know, they're, they're good action. You know, some people think they are. I guess maybe some people think they're not or whatever it is. But they're, they're action movies. They did well. But it's also, um, there was a lot of thought, I think, that did go into what a lot of that content was. It wasn't just dodging bullets and shooting guys. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the things that I definitely appreciate about it is there's a lot of kind of gems that are there that um, maybe if you're not even looking for them, kind of get dropped in your lap. Right. So perhaps require more consideration later if you're, you know, one to do such a thing, but... Well, and especially when you compare it to the action movies coming out around that. I mean, Steven Seagal used to be in the theater. I know that's hard to remember or believe <laughs> if you weren't around then. But in the 90s, Steven Seagal movies were released in theaters. Uh, and yeah, so to see something like this as an action movie juxtaposed with <laughs> a Van Damme movie or an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, like, it's just, there's just nothing else, you know, really like it. What's your favorite scene from the, the first one? From the first movie? Um, that'd be hard to say. I mean, the one where they're uh, rescuing Morpheus is... 
kind of the apex of that whole thing. But yeah. it's got a lot of good uh, content in that part also. So I would have to say it's it's kind of the one where uh, it would be the scene where when they've rescued Morpheus mm-hmm. and the helicopter's going down mm. and, uh, let's see, Morpheus jumps out of the helicopter, Trinity is piloting the helicopter and crashing, and uh, Neo is, grabs the rope and, you know, disconnects it, so in hopes, apparently, that she grabs the other end and he holds her and she survives. Right. Um, it's around that time. It's It's something about how, you know, I think Morpheus asks him, or, or says to him, so you finally believe you're the one, or something like this. And he, uh, Neo says, he doesn't know, but he was just not willing to not try anymore. Mm. So he knew that it was dangerous. He knew that he could, you know, die or whatever else. Right. Um, so it, it was a point where the distinction had been made, even though it hadn't in the larger sense that he doesn't necessarily think that he's the one, but the distinction that you're willing to tolerate so much and on the other side of that is non-compliance that's it also in essence i think what the movie's about and um they did a good job i think of framing that in a way where he doesn't have to be all powerful yet because right he has the power that he eventually can exercise already right and then later him becoming the one is just kind of the evolution of them demonstrating that your ability to choose things grants you power that would be synonymous with that in a way. Right. Yeah, it's, um, I, yeah, I, the, the, the scene where they rescue Morpheus is definitely, like you said, the apex of, of the movie. Um, which, I mean, just, not even just, you know, subjectively, just objectively, that's just the climax, (laughs) kind of, of the whole thing. Um, but yeah, I, I just love all the little, like, all the little phrases that they have too, like when Neo says, Towards, I think it's much earlier in the film, but he asks Morpheus, are you saying I can dodge bullets? And Morpheus says, no, what I'm telling you is that if you believe me, or I guess I don't remember the exact quote, but basically you won't have to. Mm-hmm. And then that be- reveals itself at the end whenever he catches him, he's caught in the hallway with the agents and they all shoot at him and he just holds his hand up and stops the bullets and just you know flicks his wrist and all the bullets just drop directly in front of him. As if there was some field, you know, kind of protecting him. Um, I don't know. Just, yeah, just super, super awesome. Well, now that you mentioned that part, actually, I wonder if it's um, kind of an accidental foreshadowing thing. Because when he goes to see the Oracle and she tells him about the vase uh, that he's going to knock over. Oh, and my she God. says, what's going to, you know, get to you later is would you have broken it if I hadn't said anything, right? Right. So it's the know yourself kind of thing. Um so uh, sitting here with us just talking about it, I wonder if, you know, would Neo have thought he could stop bullets if Morpheus hadn't planted that seed? Right. Yeah, that's because true. There's, he has no reason to think that he could do that other than that now, since he believes he's the one, he thinks that he should be able to do that. So he just does it as though it's something that he's going to be able to do. Right. Even though he's never done it before. Yeah, you know, actually, so the the, the helicopter scene and all that is, is definitely the best action scene. But, as, uh, you know, here I go. Yet again, another scene that resonated with me at done. It's one of the most famous scenes from the movie, but that I didn't understand until much I was much older. And that's the scene with the little kid and the spoon. And he's bending the spoon around. And Neo asks him how he's doing it. And he tells him that he first has to understand that there is no spoon. And to some extent, they're in the Matrix, 
So it's literally there isn't a spoon, and you can make this do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. But it's also a larger truth of, of, yet again, like what you perceive and what you believe shapes what is then possible or real. So if you believe that this is a rigid spoon, then it is. But if you believe that it's not that, and that it's actually just whatever you make it, then that's what it is instead. Now, I have also tried to bend spoons using that methodology, and it does not work for me, at least. <laughs> but I might not be the one, so... Nobody's <laughs> doing it wrong. Nobody yeah, does. I've always said that as much as I love all of it, I'm probably the guy who betrays them all, Cypher. <laughs> because... Ignorance is bliss. Yeah, he's like, just give me the steak and the money and it's fine. <laughs> I'll, I'll go back. Now, the only part is, is I don't know that I could sell out all my friends that hard, because that's pretty cruel, how he gets all of them killed, even kills one of them, or two of them, but um, but he's not wrong about it being pretty sweet to just be rich and have steak and not have to worry about, you know, the world that they actually You're occupy, right. which is a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Like, are there any trees? I guess not, because there's no sun no, or whatever. It doesn't <laughs> appear to be anything green. There's just cables. Well, that's something also that I never recognized until going back and rewatching them as, as I was older, is that any time they're in the Matrix, there's a slight green tint to everything, and there's just constantly green things in the frames. So, like, the exit signs. Like, every exit sign I've ever seen in, like, a, you know, a corporate-type building or something, an office building, it's red, like, orange letters for exit. But in... In the first Matrix, uh, like whenever he's in his office at the very beginning and the, the agents come to, to capture him, he stands up and looks over the cubicle and there's an exit sign. Mm-hmm. And the text of that is, is a, a very vibrant green color. And I was like, huh, I'd never, I never even, re- I didn't realize it was to that level of nuance that they tried to, to plug the green into the Matrix to kind of, you know, indicate where things were happening. That's interesting. I, I didn't know that that was a yeah resource that they were kind of trying to... Right. It's very uh, subtle, you know? I mean, when I say it's tinted green, it's not like it looks unbelievable or something. Right, it's just yeah. basically like, like for example, the first scene when Trinity's running from the agents at the very opening of the movie, when she's running across the rooftops, it looks like it's just nighttime and rainy, so the, the roofs have kind of a sheen to them, and it's, it's dark. So it doesn't really look... It's not like a blatant lime green or something, but there is actually just kind of a greenish tint to those rooftops and, and that kind of stuff. So... Um, we go to the second Matrix movie. The second Matrix movie just has a, a ton of stuff that I like. Uh, two things that I like would be Jada Pinkett Smith and Roy Jones Jr. Super thrilled to see both of them cast in the movie. I love <laughs> Roy Jones Jr. I don't love as an actor because I don't know if he's ever acted in anything before or since then. <laughs> if he has, it didn't do well. Um, but he's an you know an, a really, really famous boxer from the 90s, for those of you who are not familiar. I would argue one of the greatest boxers of all time. Um, but yeah, so to see him in it was was super cool. And then Jada Pinkett Smith is actually a really great actor. Like, she was excellent in that movie. Like, she very 
very does a very good job of embodying that the character that, that she's supposed to play. Morpheus is kind of former lover or whatever. Yeah. Um so the second one does it start out with them in the meeting and the agents come knock on the door or whatever? Uh yes, pretty much. They because <clears throat> Morpheus uh, is late showing up and they're wondering right where he was. Um but yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much the uh, opening sequence. So they they jump off with the action pretty straight away. <laughs> right. Yeah, but I mean, the way that the... I mean, bullet time obviously became a huge phenomenon after that and was super popular and used in a lot of stuff. But, like, just the... the I don't know if it's called animation, since it's a live-action movie, but the animation of the agents when they're dodging bullets and you kind of see, like, a trail of their body or whatever as they're moving around. Super cool. Like, love that effect. Never seen anything like it before. The fight scene that, that going back to the first one that Smith and Neo have in the subway or whatever, when Smith is like punching him in the stomach, I don't know a hundred times a second or something. <laughs> what I don't know what it's supposed to simulate, but yeah. like yeah, just super cool looking. Um, so yeah, so so you go into the second one, they're kind of establishing that Neo is because he just like runs around and like flies all over the matrix doing stuff I guess they 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 say where's neo going and the ship operator goes uh he's doing his superman thing again and then it's just him I I don't know what he does I don't know if he rescues kittens from trees or something or <laughs> what he spends his time doing <laughs> But anyway so the the second movie is pretty much non-stop action from the time that they go see the frenchman which I don't actually know what his name is. I mean, I, I know they call him the Merovingian, yeah. but I don't know if I'm saying that right. I'm just recreating a sound. I have no idea how that's spelled, what it looks like, oh, what yeah. it means. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know that he has a name other than that. Just They call him the Merovingian. Yeah. but it, So he has this whole crew of misfit programs, basically, that are all like, that basically serve to explain the supernatural phenomenon that's throughout human history. So there's some that look like vampires and some that are like ghosts and that kind of fill in these old myths or whatever about these monsters or something. Cause like when they go to, to, to kill two of his lackeys or whatever later, when his wife Persephone threatens them, she threatens one of them with silver, which is like the vampire killer thing. And I think maybe he even has the, canines or whatever yeah i don't remember that i don't remember if he has canines or not but it seems like it seems like he might have the vampire teeth but but i'm actually kind of i'm i'm kind of struggling to recall what is happening prior oh they go back to zion i guess that's what happens they they do the meeting and then they go back to zion and that's where all the people are like worshiping neo yeah yeah Um, because he's I think that there was an animatrix or there was something, there was some bit of um, that universe's lore story that had been told between the first and the second movie. Mm. And it was something about how um, Neo had freed a lot of other people who were now in Zion. Because you remember there's that young kid who comes up and is following him around a lot of the movie and thanking him profusely and all this stuff. And he says, you set me free. And he says, no kid, you set yourself free or something like that. Yep. Um, which I didn't follow. I never knew from, just from the course of watching the three movies, but I think that there was something maybe in the Animatrix that spoke to that. I don't know. I don't remember if there was or not. 
I, the Animatrix is also excellent and is worth everyone's time if you haven't seen it. Um, but yeah, I don't remember if I don't know if there was something. But I but you're right. Yeah, he, that is the relationship with him and that kid, and all of them very much view him as like this deified savior type yeah. character. Well, I think I think there's still a, a deviation among the population in Zion uh, that is the believers and the non-believers. Mm-hmm. So. Um, yeah, all the people show up in mass to give their thanks or their right. You know, like they're almost praying or something to him, like a deity or something. Right, right. Because then that, and then they go have the. Is that when they have the party? That's not. That's in the second one still, right? Um, that's not in the third one. Uh, yeah, the um, the party is in the second one. Okay. I'm, yeah, the I'm dance party sure thing or whatever. That. Yeah, I'm pretty confident too. Because they have to go back to... So Morpheus at the meeting asks for a ship to stay behind in their stead because they need to go back to Zion and recharge their ship or something. Right. So Morpheus goes back and then is immediately reprimanded by Commander Locke and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So that's why they're there um, and they're waiting on the other ship to come return word, for, I think, from the Oracle maybe. Yeah, and then when they go back, that's when that's when they go see the Frenchman. Whenever they leave Zion, yeah, because the Oracle tells them about they, the Keymaker. I think. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the Keymaker is one of the cooler concepts for a character. I love characters like that that have very little explanation, and it's kind of like that Sturgill Simpson Sound and Fury thing, where there's just a lot of things that just are, and they don't. The creators don't really take any time to justify it. Mm-hmm. Which I kind of like because it just kind of makes you accept it. Whereas if they take the time to justify it, then you can start to pick it apart. Right, and start asking too many questions. Yeah, and the suspension of disbelief is, is stripped away. Um, so the second one, I guess it's before they go see the Frenchman, is where he fights Smith in the courtyard, for lack of a better term. Because he goes to see the Oracle, and they're visiting, and then the Oracle leaves, and Smith shows up, and replicates himself. And there's, like, a hundred Smiths or whatever. Yeah. And then Neo fights him. A lot of people really hate that scene, and I think that's a scene that a lot of people point to as, like, why the Matrix isn't that great. It does have a computer-animated Neo in it, which doesn't look that great by today's standards, but... Right, yeah. I don't actually care. Like, I thought it was fine. The only part of it that's a little, like, you could have done without that is when he swings the one smith around and hits several others and it plays a bowling pin yeah. noise, and it's like, that's kind of... Yeah, whoever <laughs> made the executive decision on that one, they needed to... Uh, it's just a little cheeky. Yeah, that one out, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But other than that, I mean, that whole scene is super cool when he, because he, he rips the stop sign pole out of the ground and like breaks the concrete off of it, I think on one of the Smiths yeah. and then has like a pole and now it's like bow staff time and it's like, oh, this is what I've always wanted. Show yeah. me all of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so they go see the Frenchman and that again leads to one of my favorite scenes in all of the movies and that's when they leave the conversation with the Frenchman. So they've asked him for the key maker and he says no. And they get back on the elevator and Trinity says, do you think that went how it was supposed to? And Morpheus says it, it went exactly how it was supposed to. And she says, but we didn't get what we came for. How do you know that it was right? And he says, because we're still alive. 
And I really liked that, um, that idea, I guess, of kind of like, well, if you haven't, in, in that example, if you haven't failed in the sense that now you're dead, right? If you can continue on, then it's not, it's not wrong. It's not bad. It's not over because you can still persist. You can still continue. Right. It's not, it, there's no finality to this. Um, and then that's when Persephone leaves his wife and goes and gets the key maker and betrays, <laughs> betrays the Frenchman or whatever. And then from then on, it's just nonstop nutso action. I mean, they, you get the highway scene where Trinity gets on the Ducati bike. That's super cool. Mm-hmm. We all had motorcycles when that came out. I remember definitely going and riding my motorcycle <laughs> after seeing that. At a very safe speed. Well, it was me, so yes. (laughs) Yes, it was actually kind of a safe speed because I didn't want to get hurt, but um, and I wasn't, I wasn't riding head on into traffic or anything like she does. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, and the fight scene on top of the semi, like with age, actually, just that whole sequence with the agents, where like the one agent jumps out of his car and lands on the hood of another one and it like completely crushes it and flips it end over end. Like again, who's thought of this? Like I've never, I'd never had considered a man jumping on a car and that (laughs) happening. You know what I mean? Yeah. And me thinking it was going to be cool. (laughs) (laughs) You thinking that he wouldn't just fall off and hurt himself right away. Right. Right. Now that's what I think about just about anywhere. I think that I might jump is that I would probably (laughs) shortly thereafter fall and hurt myself. But (laughs) Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, is there, what scenes stand out to you from the second, from the second Matrix? That's hard to, you know, it's hard coming up with anything for the first movie, but the second one, since it is so fast paced and and on the stop, um, there's just a ton going on there. Yeah. Well, I mean, so you get the, you get the highway scene and then after the highway, well, I guess before the highway scene, you get the scene where he's fighting the Merovingians dudes in the Merovingian's house because I think they, do they try and shoot him again and he stops it or something? I don't know. Something happens where he, he impresses them. Neo, that is being he, but then he bleeds and the Merovingian's like, see, he's just a man. And as if like, how could he possibly compete with these AI bots or whatever? And then they have, one of the cooler martial arts fighting yeah. sequences that I've ever seen. That's a, that is a really good sequence. Um, but also there's a, a part there where, he, so the, the, the Merovingians, um, henchmen all shoot at him. They unload and he yeah. has the stop bullets thing again. And then he, that's when he stops the sword and bleeds right thereafter. Okay. But, um, at any rate, the Merovingian says something like, uh, I've survived your predecessors and I'll survive you as well. Yes. And I remember that being like a, um, like a think piece where like, what is like what other guys that have come in here to like be mean? What, what predecessor are we talking about? Right. And then of course that unfolds later in the story, but, uh, it's another bit of interesting kind of foreshadowing where you have uh, a character who's the depth of that character has been expressed to be vast, but you don't know what, is he just a powerful businessman? Is he, does he right. own a restaurant and make cake for <laughs> women, women that yeah. go to the bathroom? <laughs> right. But, um, yeah, that, that plays out and then you kind of get to see, you know, he has his hand in a lot of pots apparently. Right. Um, and kind of knows something about what's going on and then is elusive mm-hmm. at the same time. So 
um, it's you know, it's like the like level two of how strong are you kind of a thing because Neo's you know the first movie ends he's the one he's powerful all this stuff and then you run into the Merovingian who is pretty prepared for right a not lot impressed of things like that right and even though Neo's strong he can just kind of dip out and he's got the doors that lead to anywhere right so then it's another point of intrigue he has Neo's got another mountain to have to climb which keeps it compelling yeah 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 that's true. Yeah, they actually do that a few times. Like, in the first one, whenever he gets in the car, that scene I was talking about earlier where Trinity tells him, you know where that road ends, so, you know, choose a different one. Um, whenever he gets in the car, Apoc, no, not Switch, the woman, she pulls a, a gun on him, and he says, what is this? And she says, listen, Copper Top, it's our way or the highway. And it, it's a reference to calling him a battery, but at that point in the movie you have no context for why she would call him copper top. He doesn't have red hair, so it doesn't, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't really make a lot of sense, yeah. but, <laughs> but it's the same kind of deal where it's a tiny bit of foreshadowing for what will later be revealed. So yeah, so the action sequences of the second one are just absolutely phenomenal. Um, I, I, again, I've watched that. I, I, I could watch, I could watch any of them at any time probably, but that one, I have just watched more than the others by a large margin because it's just so entertaining. However, what you were just alluding to is actually <clears throat> where the movies just... It's where the second movie blew my mind all over again. Because the first movie blew my mind. And the second one, for most of it, is kind of just more of the same. It's just an extension of what you learned in the first movie to be true. And they're just kind of filling in more around that those ideas. But then at the end of all of that action, the reason there's all that action is it culminates with them going to visit the architect, who's supposedly the creator of the Matrix or whatever. And again, this is a scene that a lot of people criticize and say that it's one of the reasons they don't like the movie, they think it's pretentious or whatever. I love every part of it. I love the way the architect speaks. I love the way... I love the language he uses. And what he reveals that that there are predecessors, that this is all yet another system of control, the entire premise of Zion and the One and all of that, uh, again, blew my mind. Had no idea that that's where it was going. Definitely thought that it was just going to be Neo versus the Machines for three movies, which it till still technically is, but I didn't, I didn't foresee that he was not really the one and only one, and instead is just some programmatic anomaly as the <laughs> architect explains it yeah um but yeah and 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 also really interesting how you know like i'm i'm not a i will constantly complain about love stories in action movies and when i do that people will take that to mean that i don't like love stories and that's not true i just don't like them when they're poorly told and in a lot of action movies, they are because that's not what the movie is about. That's not what the people making the movie are there to make. They're made there to make explosions and fights, not love story. So the love story is terrible. But in the Matrix, I actually find the relationship between Neo and Trinity very compelling and believable, and it does seem like two people, like two lovers, partnered to go through you know the adventure that they're then on. And so the arch that's the whole that's again where Neo differs from all of his predecessors is that 
the architect is surprised that he doesn't feel compelled to save humanity and instead is only compelled to save Trinity. Yeah. And then leaves to go do that. Um, it is a little cheesy when he takes the bullet out of her and says, I love you too damn much. Yeah. If he didn't say the word damn, I think it works. Yep, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a little too on the nose or something where it's just like, what man? Um, but yeah, what did you think of the architect scene the first time you saw it? Did it, did it surprise you? Did you had you expected anything like that at all? Had you seen anything like that before at all? Uh, no, not at all. And I thought that the, the the scenario that they built in order to get access to the architect was very cool. So the use of the keymaker and the you know the conflict over who had control of the keymaker um, provided what the stakes were. Mm-hmm. Um, so not only the architect itself was. Mind blowing, <laughs> right? But they do a very good job of making it, you know, proving how important it really is to to get there in the challenge that they had to face to to get there, right? But you know, yeah. That said, the I I liked the architect as well because, again, I think they that actor and you know whoever they were doing with the direction of the movie and everything like this, they did a very good job of making it seem like what. Um, a machine would say almost because he speaks directly to what the point is. There's not, there's no, you know, beating around the bush or innuendos or hinting at stuff. He just kind of says what it is, and that those are the facts, right? Well, and he uses kind of complicated language, but I think the reason that that makes sense in that context is because exactly to your point, he's not. There, there's no, there's nothing, you know, um, there's nothing nonsensical about it. So he uses very specific words to convey very specific meanings, which is exactly what a machine would do. Whereas a person like me on this podcast bumbles around with words a lot and tries to find the way to say it and does talk around things and, you know, whatever, but. And with the lack of specificity, you know, language is just a difficult thing. Right. So a word can have many meanings, many meanings mm-hmm. to uh to the recipient and unless it's so specific that that word doesn't mean anything else. Right. <laughs> right. So, you right. know, efficiency and and optimization is is a thing that human, you know, people do uh often but also don't do very often. Right. So uh I appreciated the directness of what the um architect had to say you consider you know if you're putting yourself in the movie in that scenario and all this you had to talk to six other guys or f- however many right. ones there were and who knows who these people were you know you right. have to explain something that complex to people over and over and over i can certainly see using language that would leave the least amount to be determined <laughs> by the recipient as possible right <laughs> right well and especially because he actually does have a vested interest in wanting there to be a certain outcome. Right. Which is that Neo will go sacrifice himself and start the whole process over. Um, but yeah, just, just so it also just made the machine seem that much more. Cause you kind of think that maybe Neo's got one on him. Like they weren't ready for him. And it's like, not only were they ready, they designed it like they designed it 
to be ready. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's been ready the entire time. What you've been doing is the machine's version of you're ready. Right. <laughs> right, right. Um, but yeah, man, the second Matrix movie, just through and through, awesome. I would argue the best of the three. Again, I like all three of them and have really no major criticisms of any of them, but um, I think the second one is, is yeah, the, the most fun to watch because, like we said, there's all the action. There's not really any firm resolution, so it just kind of gets to be fun the whole time. Uh, and you get that revelation from the architect, which is just it's just crazy. <laughs> it's just, I never would have which, seen that coming. That's the one where you and I had to go back and even re-listen to that recently. Yeah. And to, to understand what the... Uh, not an ultimatum, but what the scenario actually consisted of. I, I had misunderstood that for a very long time. Right. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot to, to pick up there, but it's that much more spectacular whenever you do realize that the whole thing was within a measure of the machine's control and <laughs> intended. Right. Actually. Like, yeah. That one was big. Yeah, I mean, basically, just for anyone else who, you know, hasn't, is, is like, what what is it? What are you talking about? It, effectively, the machines know that Neo will, that there will be an anomaly that doesn't have to mm, observe the rules, you could say, of the Matrix and will be able to do whatever they want within it. And so that's a problem for them. So they basically create Zion and this little pocket of humanity and the lore around the one so that those people will actively seek out the one so that the machines can find it when it happens again and catch it and then repeat the whole. It's basically like they use humanity as like their virus scanner. Is kind of a very yeah. simple way to put it. Like, they don't have to look for the one because the humans will look for the one for them. Right. <laughs> and the humans will be under... Not all the machines know that's what they're doing, I don't think. Like, I don't think the Sentinels that are... Or the agents, right? Like Smith and his buddies that are chasing them around in the Matrix. I don't think they're aware that Morpheus is actually part of this larger plan to seek out the one. So th the point being that the people are actively under pressure to not be able to succeed from the machine so it makes them actually be even better at it because they really have to try like they can't just half-ass their look create the resistance right yeah. exactly second movie ends with um, with Neo kind of using his power outside of the Matrix because he shuts down the Sentinel that is like there to attack them or whatever and so that was also kind of strange like I, I definitely didn't expect to see that either 
And so then that leads right into the third movie. And the third movie, I don't know that I remember the opening scene. He's in the train station. Oh, he is. I love that scene. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot that was how it opens. Yes. That is, again, such a cool, again, actually kind of undescribed and, and not justified, but just a cool idea of, like, the train man who controls can just keep people in prison effectively indefinitely in some unknown reality where they're between the matrix and the real world. And then they go, because who do they go and see? Is it the Merovingian again? To, well, later yeah. movie, yes. Okay. The, well, I thought they go and see him to free Neo from the train man. Because isn't that where where Trinity shows up? and? Yeah, they find out that the train man works for the Merovingian. Okay. So they have to go to the Merovingian to get to the train man to get to the train station. Right, right. Because Merovingian's not about to be punked and then Trinity puts a gun to his head or something and threatens to kill him and then yeah. he concedes. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm jumping around a bit, but I also, I also really always liked the scene with um, Neo and Persephone, which I believe is in the second one, but when she makes Neo kiss her like she's Trinity or whatever, and so he kisses her once, and she's like, "Mm, come on, that doesn't count. That's (laughs) not going to work. And so then he actually has to do it. And I thought that was a really um, kind of interesting scene because it just, like, there can be a lot of magic or a lot of power in something as small as a kiss, right? But I thought that the movie did a really great job of kind of illustrating that through that scene and, and kind of... I don't know, maybe romanticizing it to some extent, for lack of a better word. Um, anyway, I just thought of that thinking of the Merovingian, because Persephone's there with him again when Trinity goes to kill him, or you know, free Neo the, the second time. Yeah. Um, the, I, the, whenever I think of the third one, honestly, the thing that the scene that jumps out to me the most is the guy who's like the sergeant or whatever of the human army. And when he gets in the big mech and is, like, shooting them as they come in and then just gets lashed they to pieces. Yeah. yeah. Like, that, that I, and I don't know if that's fair for that to be the, like, first thing I think of when I think of the third movie. But that's that's definitely it. Like, I, I associate the third movie a lot with those scenes of, like, the big mech things fighting the Sentinels as they pour in to Zion. Well, it would be really that, that I mean, stitches right in with the fabric of... Um, you know how how we describe the end of the second movie there, where humanity is so driven by all these emotions that it's so predictable mm-hmm. that the machines can count on it. Well, since that was a you know measure of control by the machine in the first place, they sold their their you know process here so hard that that guy I think I want to say. Captain Mafuni or something? Yeah, something like Mahoney, um, I don't know. But like he, you know, that scene stands out because you you can tell that he's just dug in. He's he's going to grit his teeth and bear it. And he's mm-hmm. willing to die in a horrific way for a cause. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, that cause is actually what the machines wanted in the first place. But he has no idea about that. Right, right. So the, the salesmanship, as I keep saying it, or whatever, this package that's been delivered yeah. is so strong because you can count on human beings being emotional. So if you know that they're going to be emotional, give them something to be emotional about and they won't deviate. Right. And they'll do exactly what you need them to do 
provided you can guide them. Right. But also it's strength of will. You know, I think it shows two things. You know, it's that the, the people, um, they do believe their back's against the wall. I mean, it is. Right. Um, Even if it's fabricated, it still literally is. Yeah. <laughs> well, so that's what the architect also kind of describes. And I think that's what you and I kind of talked about is that, so the, the whole process with the architect and the cycle of the one is that the one reser- returns himself to the source code but before he does that, he chooses, I think it's like 13 individuals, seven women, six men, or I don't know what the breakdown is, but yeah. something like that. And they restart Zion. Well, so what that does is those 13 people know the one. So the people who refound Zion believe that this guy is real because he really was. He rescues them and then... Frees them. Lo- yeah, and then dies or whatever, is gone. And says he'll return eventually, which he will. Um, but yeah, but it's all just a big sham, which is <laughs> deeply dissatisfying if you know. Now, they don't ever, most of those people that die in that war, so I guess they were never unsatisfied by that. But um, I also thought it was interesting, and this might be, again, a scene from the second one, but when Neo is talking to the guy who's like the mayor, or whatever you want to call him, of the Zion... Uh, one of the councilmen. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. The I don't know if he's even the head, but whatever. Yeah, the councilman. And they're talking about the inner relationship between humans and machines. And how he's like, it's funny because we're fighting all these machines, except that our entire existence here is based off of these machines. And I don't know how any of them work. I don't know how, what any of, I, I just know what its function is, like what its purpose is, but I don't actually know how it achieves th- what it's supposed to achieve and then relates that to that's his understanding of Neo as well as that Neo is going to achieve something, but he doesn't actually understand how Neo will achieve that. Yeah. Um, so in the third movie, you also get actually something that's kind of a side note. So in the third movie, the Oracle who we haven't really talked very much about, but super cool character, very fascinating part of the movies but the, the actress who played the Oracle in the first and the second movie dies before they film the third one. Yeah. So they switch out the actress. But I don't know if there's a better movie where that could happen and the viewer be like, yep, totally makes sense. Because yeah. it's the Matrix, so she could be anyone. <laughs> and, like, you don't question it at all. Whereas, like, there's a movie series, there's at least two of them, Major League uh, that's these baseball comedy movies from the 90s. Well, the first one stars Wesley Snipes. And the second one, the same character, is played by Omar Epps. And that was the first time I had ever seen that happen, where it's... An, character, uh, an actor swap out. <laughs> yeah, and I remember, like, just being really confused, and, like, the first time I watched it, like, constantly trying to figure out if it actually was Wesley Snipes, and I just couldn't tell... <laughs> But it's not. It's Omar Epps. <laughs> but anyway, there it kind of was was strange. But yeah, in uh, in the Matrix, it works. So something I watched the other day. LeBron James has this show on HBO called The Shop. It's like a barber shop setting, and he just invites in different people, celebrities, and sports figures, and that sort of stuff. And he had Will Smith on, and it turns out Will Smith was actually originally supposed to be the one. And Val Kilmer was supposed to be Morpheus. Wow. Now, I mean, exact same script and everything. I just don't think it works with that. Because Will Smith is too powerful of a 
Like I, I mean, he not that he he's a great actor, so maybe he could have pulled it off, but it would just be hard to like Neo Keanu Reeves is very believable as kind of a like who is this guy? Like he's just kind of an idiot, kind of seeming. But Will Smith is like so he's like he's like Black Tom Cruise. Like he's like so full of energy and confidence, and like it, it would just be kind of hard to believe him as this like bumbling guy who doesn't get it. Yeah, I think you just see the opening scene where he's, you know, at the computer or whatever, and you're like, ah, whatever's going to happen, Will Smith is going to win. So, right. Fine. That's what I mean. <laughs> like, it's just like he, it's Will Smith. And like, and I mean, I don't, now I don't know if this would have been normal Val Kilmer or if it would be modern fat Val, Kil- Val Kilmer, but that would also be a tough sell that he is the wise one that like knows more than Will Smith about anything. I mean, I, I don't know Val, Val Kilmer. Maybe he's brilliant. Yeah. I just don't believe it right now. <laughs> well, there was... I saw, like, a behind-the-scenes something. It was probably before the shooting of the second movie. Mm-hmm. But um, they they had a crazy workout schedule for martial arts training and all this stuff. They right. Had, it was, like, six months straight of, like, two-a-days equivalent kind of a thing. Where yeah. Doing... Uh, Neo had to do the Bo Staff... Um, Morpheus had a lot of katana mm, work and stuff yep. like that, and um, a lot of conditioning. So, well, and I, th- I wonder, you know, Val Kilmer getting out there doing that. I have no idea what these people's ages are. Him is is a you know, in two thousand three again. Yeah. I don't know, but yeah. yeah, I know modern Val Kilmer is hilarious. Okay, <laughs> but um, but yeah, well, and so also another one is that the architect was supposed to be Sean Connery originally, which. I also feel like would have detracted from that yeah, it's scene. Too much of an iconic presence. It would feel like, like really? a cameo. Yeah, exactly. Not like the architect. Yeah, <laughs> it would be like, oh, Sean Connery showed up. Look at that. Like <laughs> up next, Harrison Ford. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fuck off. Like... <laughs> yeah, I think the cast was uh, was great. Yeah. No, I I agree. But it's interesting just because like. You know, you, you you see the movie as it is, and obviously <laughs> there's not another way for it to be because it already exists. But, like, yeah, to, to picture those different actors in those roles. Well, and so on the shop, the Chance, there's a, another guy that was on that episode with Will Smith is a, a guy named Chance the Rapper, who's a very famous hip-hop artist at this point, obviously with the name. And, uh, and he actually said that he, as a young kid, really appreciated that Morpheus was Lawrence Fishburne because it, it, he thought he really resonated with the idea that it was a black dude who was like the one that was like leading everybody. Cause even though Neo's the one, none of that happens without more like Morpheus is the glue that holds everything else together. And I thought that was kind of an interesting perspective. I had, you know, personally not considered that I'm white, so that's a thing, but, <laughs> um, who yeah. spoke to a certain audience, kind of iconic. You yeah, know, kind of way. and well, and like he said, because he says to Will Smith, he's like, "I'm really glad that you didn't do it." Because Will, the question, how it came up was, they were like, "Do you regret any of the movies that you made?" And Will Smith was like, "No, not really. I mean, I make jokes about the Wild West, but whatever." And he's like, "Honestly, I regret stuff that I didn't make, a la The Matrix." And and then that's when Chance is like, "I'm glad that you didn't, because while you might have been good in it, it it would have made." Morpheus be a white guy, which changes a lot of the dynamic for how he perceived it or whatever. And I was like, huh, that's kind of interesting too. Again, I hadn't really considered that, but 
you know, interesting sentiment. Um, so then, you know, you go through the third one, um, and they re that's when Smith is kind of actually revealed fully. I mean, it, it starts in the second one, but it, you kind of have the full understanding because he's able to basically transfer his consciousness through the real world because he takes over that Bane guy or whatever. Mm -hmm. So he is revealed to, to really be the villain of the movies even more so than the, the machines. Uh, not that the machines are their allies now or something, but Smith is definitely the, 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 the big bad guy because the machines don't know how to stop him either. So... That's when Morpheus, or excuse me, not Morpheus, Neo and Trinity take the ship and decide that they're going to go to, like, the heart of the machine capital, or I don't remember what phrasing they use. But that also... Oh, go ahead. Oh, the, the machine city or... Yeah, something like that. Essentially the capital. But it's it, it leads to one of my all-time favorite scenes from those movies as well, which I always think about now when I get on an airplane. And it's it's the scene where they're flying and they're, they're trying to dodge all the missiles or whatever that are being lobbed at them. And so they fly through the atmosphere, or, you know, through the, the, the sky or whatever, and kind of break through. Because the, the lore of it is that the machines have blocked out the sun in order to hurt humanity further. And prevent them from having daylight, I guess. Well, I think the, the people... Oh, you're right. ...blocked out the sun to prevent the machines from having access to solar power. You are absolutely correct, yes. Yep, that is true. Yeah, so it's almost like humanity's own, like, they've, like, dug their own grave to some extent. Um, but anyway, so they break through this, like, layer of, like, smog and pop out. And it's just, like, this beautiful blue sky, just like you see whenever you fly in an airplane and end up above, you know, above, above the clouds or whatever. And it's just so serene. And it's like, so it's just this like moment of like tranquility and beauty. And then it lasts for like four seconds. And then the ship plummets back down into the you know bowels of hell, if you will. <laughs> um, ultimately culminating though with, um, with Neo giving himself over to the machines and uh, fighting Smith. Now, I've never watched Dragon Ball Z. I personally think that the end scene between Neo and Smith is awesome in the rain when there's, like, the infinite Smiths in the city or whatever, and they, they're, like, fighting and there's the huge water shock waves and stuff. Like, I think it looks super cool. I, I'm totally into it. But a lot of people I have talked to about it say that they feel like it's just a direct ripoff I guess of like Dragon Ball Z fights and so they don't they, they, they don't find Somehow it compelling it invalidates it because it resembles something else that they've seen ever <laughs> <laughs> which literally everything is derivative so right. welcome to life but but yeah I mean I, I haven't seen it but my guess is that it probably is a nod to that I mean the which way, is it's very popular that's what I mean you know, yeah and yes, it is very similar. Right, but... But I don't, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> right, right. But that's when, that's kind of the, you know, early when we were talking, I talked about how choice is kind of the the theme throughout the whole thing, and, and Neo is constantly choosing, making his own choices, and not just doing whatever he's been told. Non-compliance, like you said. Um, 
and that's kind of the where you know I said it's really driven home at the end, and because Smith just continually beats Neo over and over, and finally says why, like why do you continue, and Neo just says because I choose to, and that's that's like in essence the thing that the machine can't understand because yeah. to the machine everything is a logic problem where there's just one answer, there's never a choice, it's just binary you wouldn't do this you would do this yeah um and yeah i don't know that's always been uh, the, the the whole series of movies has always been very powerful for me and, and resonated with me a lot because of because of of that theme i think is there any other theme that you can think of that is that really stands out to you throughout the films uh, no, not, not something that's just jumping directly to mind. You know, I'm sure I could sit through and watch them again and have a whole, you know, right. another hour's worth of things to say about it. But, right. Um, yeah, I know uh, when we first talked about this, this as a concept, um, in defense of the matrix, you right. know, I, that was kind of like a mind bender to me. I was like, wait a minute, what, what are we defending? This is, you know, this is a great movie. Everyone loves this. And then of course I find... As with anything, there are haters out there, <laughs> right. but I hadn't even considered it, you know. Right. So, um, there's just a ton there, and it's. I think it's just one of those things where people don't like to have to be introspective. Yeah. So, um, you know, and you can see that live just every single day, anywhere you go. So, it, really, it's not surprising that that. I'll say it was like perhaps a tough pill to swallow for people. <laughs> right. Not in that they can't um, conceptualize the meaning of the the movie, but um, I guess I could see how people would would take that kind of a cop out angle of saying like, oh, that's not profound. Of course, you can choose, and it's like, well, that's why cliches are cliches because they they're so applicable, but it's that they became too common, and now people for, have forgotten their meaning. Right. Right. So it's it's like a lot of things where you could get as much from it as you want or as little as you want. Right. Yes, I agree completely. I mean, it, it's it's almost kind of like uh, it's kind of like my my relationship with with the band Tool, where you get whatever it is when you first consume it, and if that's all you want, then that's all you can take, and it is what it was, and that's fine. But you can also elect to continue like peeling back the the layers of the onion. And there's just always a little bit more and a little bit more and it's a little bit more interesting and a little bit more insightful. And yeah, I think the matrix does that very well. Also the, all three of the movies, another complaint that, that people have had is that at the end of the third one, when Neo is, is going to sacrifice himself to the machines or going to fight Smith or whatever, he gets into like a, the machines kind of create like a chair almost for him but his arms are outstretched to his side, so it's kind of a cross symbolism, like he's being crucified or whatever. So a lot of people told me, at least I especially remember when it came out, that they found that troubling, that it was using this like Christian iconography or whatever. And again, I would compare that actually to the Dragon Ball Z thing, where I don't think that, they're, that the movie is in any way trying to say Neo is Jesus. However, I do think that if it's more than just a chair, which is actually all I thought it was the first time I saw it, or just like a place for him to be suspended while he gets jacked into the, the program or whatever. I, I, again, you know, 
It turns out that Christianity's been around for 2,000 years, so it's a very old thing. And the symbol, or the idea of the cross being a symbol for sacrifice, for self-sacrifice for a greater good, is valid. Because that is what Neo is doing. <laughs> he is sacrificing his own self for the greater good. Um, and yeah, it ends with kind of this like tacit agreement between the machines and people, where people are given the option now if they want to stay in the Matrix. It doesn't really elaborate too too much on that. Um, but that's that's kind of where it wraps up. And it has the little girl who was with Neo. There's that family that's with him in the train station at the beginning. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I've, I've seen things online. I, I haven't actually read very much about it because I don't want it to be true. <laughs> so I've, I've hidden my eyes from it, but... Supposedly there's maybe another Matrix movie in the works. Hmm. Um, I, I just, I don't know. I, I don't know if the Wachowski people are involved again with it. If so, then maybe it's fine. They made another show on Netflix within the last few years called Sense8 that was really bad. Um, so I'm not, I'm not even very eager to see them go back to it and mess with it again. Yeah. Well, they did Cloud Atlas, I think, too, didn't they? Oh, I don't know. I haven't actually seen that. I think that that's correct. Okay. I can't swear to it, but I... And that's one of your favorite correct. films, right? I I wouldn't go. Oh, that's wrong okay. Again. But I, I liked it. It's, okay. it's interesting. Okay. Um, it's... And I'm pretty sure it's a Wachowski. Okay. But it's along the same lines where it's... It, there's there's things to think about. Kind right. Of film. It's... You know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very, like you've said, I think that's very accurate. I mean, with, with The Matrix, you get a really excellent action movie, but then you also get something that's a little deeper that you can actually think about, as opposed to, you know, I, I joked earlier about Seagal and Van Damme and those movies, but even modern action movies, which would be like The Avengers or any of the Marvel movies or whatever, or even like The Dark Knight, which I think people, people would say that the Christopher Nolan Batman movies are like more, um, I don't know, higher quality movies or something than the Avengers movies. But even those, that there's not a lot to think about. You kind of just, like, here's a good guy, here's a bad guy, they're fighting. If the good guy didn't win yet, that's because there's more sequels. If the good guy won, it's the end of the films. And that's kind of it. Like, yeah. there's not really much else to it. Whereas with The Matrix... No, no one really wins, other than Smith loses, I guess, and that's a good thing. <laughs> but yeah, annihilation is averted. But other than that, you still have to kind of figure out how to continue. Right, right. Because I don't really understand how it makes sense that you could ask if you wanted to be in the Matrix or not. Like maybe that's actually just another trick by the machines. Because again, if I stepped out and it was like, hey, do you want to live here in the subway or would you like to live? in the virtual world where it's awesome. I'd be like, well, load me up. Take the virtual <laughs> world. Now to be clear, I don't live in a subway now, and if the Matrix became available today, I would not know of you anymore unless you people join me in the Matrix, because I'm gone. I'm in it. You know what I mean? I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to kill anyone to get there, but, uh, but yeah, I would definitely get jacked in. Well, uh, thank you very much, Nick, for joining me for the conversation. This is one that we've wanted to have for quite a while, and I I love the Matrix movies so much, and I just I felt so compelled to put something out there that, that is a, 
a bulwark against the hatred of the Matrix because it shouldn't exist. It's it's too good yeah. for people to not like it. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Cool, man. That is going to do it for today's show. Thank you so much, Nick Cunningham, for stopping by and joining the show today. And thank you, Misha Zarens, again, for providing the music for the show. I also want to mention Ozark's Food Harvest, which is a a local food bank here in southwest Missouri that that helps provide meals to needy families and children. I highly encourage you, if you're in the local area in southwest Missouri, to donate or volunteer with Ozark's Food Harvest, as they're a really well-run organization. However, if you're in another part of the, the world or the country, I strongly encourage you to locate your local food bank and see how you can help out there. Uh, hunger is a problem that we absolutely can can solve, and uh, yeah, the food banks are there to, to help accomplish that. I also want to invite you to like, rate, subscribe, whatever the, the, the application you listen to the podcast through lets you do. Uh, it does help it become more discoverable. But beyond that, I ask that you just tell a friend, share it with, with someone else if, if you enjoy these episodes and kind of help spread the word. As always, couldn't appreciate you listening more, so thanks so much, and have a great rest of the week.